For the past few weeks we have been camped here in James 4 <clears throat> looking at the differences between friendship with the world and friendship with God. Uh, and the reason that we've spent so much time here is because of the importance and practicality of this particular test of authentic faith. I don't think there's anything more important in time or eternity than knowing whether or not your relationship with God is real. I mean, isn't it, wouldn't it be a terrible thing to wake up in eternity and realize it was never real? And so uh, this, if nothing else, is good reason to be attentive during our study of James, uh, asking the Holy Spirit to do His work in our hearts personally, um, and keeping a close eye on what um, the inspired Word has is saying to our hearts. Most of us have a pretty, a, a pretty good idea where our friendships lie, whether with the world or with God. Sometimes we can even get a fairly good idea about each other's friendships with the world or with God just by paying attention to how we act, right? How we think, what we say, what's important to us. Uh, this was the case, of course, with the apostles when uh, Jesus had already ascended and sent the uh, apostles and disciples into the world to preach the gospel. Uh, James and, or Peter and John, rather, were in downtown Jerusalem preaching the gospel, doing exactly what Jesus had told them to do. So they were arrested and, and brought before the Jewish leadership. And this is what the Jewish leaders concluded. Found in Acts 4.13, now when they, that is the Jewish leadership, saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Can people tell if you've been with Jesus? Can people tell if I've been with Jesus? Can people tell if we're friends with God or with the world? Last week we looked at how our friendship with the world, at least the worldly system, causes us problems. Remember that? And we talked about how friendship with the world causes problems uh, in our relationships with one another, uh, our relationship with ourself, and most importantly our relationship with God. So if we're friends with the world it has a significant and dramatic, I would say, impact on our relationships. Uh, in verse 1 it says that all of those problems begin inside of us. If you're at James 4, look at verse 1. All those problems in our relationships with each other, with ourselves, and with God begin right in here, in our own hearts. Uh, this dysfunction that we experience without Christ is, is based in our prideful selfishness. This is what James is saying. And then last week in verse 6 we ended it looking at a wonderful picture of God's grace. I, I try to every week uh, end with uh, encouragement from the gospel. And last week it was easy because of verse 6. Um, look at verse 6. But he gives more grace. I mean you could go a lot of places with that couldn't you? Uh, and I, that is my hope that you did also. But this test of faith that we're in here, whether or not we're a friend with the world or a friend with God, has been particularly daunting, hasn't it? Has it affected you at all, um, thinking about um, your friendships with either God or the world? Has it, has it brought you any level of concern, examining your life, seeing bits and pieces of the residue of friendship with the world? I know it has me. I, I, I've many times wondered whether or not I should be up here talking to you 
about these things with the very things that I'm talking to you about residing in my own heart. Of course, uh, I, I brought that question up at a preaching seminar with Dr. Stephen Lawson, and he said, John, if you wait to preach on things that you're familiar and comfortable with, you'll never preach. So uh, I take solace in that, realizing that, that someone's got to say it, <laughs> right? And that someone happens to be the preacher. Anyways, let's, let's look at uh, James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. I'm going to read these 10 verses for you if you'll follow along. Um, let, let the Holy Spirit do His work in you. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you want you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So we have here the focus of today's text, today's sermon is verses 7 through 10. But the transitional verse there, 6, is an important one. Now, as, as we begin, I want to remind you that the book of James is uh, designed for professing believers. That would be most of us. It's designed for professing believers to test their faith, to find out whether or not it's authentic. That's the goal here. That's the point of James, the writer. That's the point of the Holy Spirit. It's a horrible thing to be deceived, but how much worse is it to be self-deceived? I can, I can maybe manage getting tricked occasionally here and there by people, salesmen, whatever. Uh, but it's not acceptable for me to be tricked by myself. And this is the thing that James wants us to avoid as well. And in, in the important arena of faith, although I believe, as I said last week, that the focus of verse 6 is grace, it yet remains that God is opposed to the proud. You see that there in verse 6? As much as we want to, to think about grace, experience grace, and have grace be the topic of conversation, we can't avoid what's plainly said in verse 6, that God opposes the proud. And so I want to, I want to begin there. William Barclay, the, the great commentator, said this at one point. Uh, he said, pride shuts itself off from God for three reasons. One, it does not know its own need. Two, it cherishes its own independence. And three, it does not recognize its own sin. This is why God is opposed to pride. It, it puts a barrier between him and you. It eliminates the possibility of reconciliation. So God hates pride. You may, you, you may have heard many say that, that pride is the fundamental sin of everybody. This is where all of our sins begin. It's in our own 
Pride. Think of a sin in your mind, anyone you want besides pride. You know where it begins. Pride. All of them begin with a prideful attitude. But God, on the other hand, gives grace to humble people. This is what the prophet Isaiah said, chapter 66, verse 2. This is the one to whom I will look. This is God speaking. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. That's what God wants out of us. Someone who's humble and contrite in spirit. And who respects the word of God. So as we today close out the examination of this eighth test here in verses 1 through 10, chapter 4 of James, uh, I expect that some of you are feeling a little bit uh, spiritually vulnerable maybe from what you've been dealing with over the past weeks, maybe even a little bit bewildered spiritually speaking. After so many penetrating tests it's easy to become weary, isn't it? Browbeat maybe. But thankfully James here, the Holy Spirit through James lets us breathe a little bit at the end of this eighth test verses 7 through 10 by pointing out a wonderful solution for us. If you've felt a little bit unnerved from the tests of faith that we've looked at, today's a good day to pay attention. All right? I want to encourage you to do so as much as you possibly can. can. Put aside any distracting thoughts. Uh, and there are many, I know, I've got a few in my mind this morning that I've been praying that God would remove from me because this is a great day for God's people in this book. What we have here in verses 7 through 10, let's, let's include 6, from 6 through 10, is one of the clearest calls to salvation in Scripture. You want to know what has to happen in your heart to know true, authentic, saving, living, eternal faith? It's found in verses 6 through 10 of this chapter. He's reviewing some of the basic elements of the gospel. He's inviting us to saving faith. If you've been exposed as potentially inauthentic, pay attention, is what James is saying, what the Holy Spirit, what I'm saying. Um, the, the point here is to, to give hope and direction, a, a lit path to Christ this morning. And this, as James masterfully does, it doubles as an admonition to all of us who are firm in our faith. So this grace goes both directions. Those who don't know Christ and those who know him. Either way, it is for everyone in the room. As you listen to me read these verses, I'm not sure you were counting. Maybe some of you uh, OCD people were, but there are 10 commands in verses 7 through 10. 10 commands in these verses. And James uses them like a machine gun to get our attention, to help us look at the gospel right in the eye. They're not given in a sequence or an order in which they happen to someone who comes to faith because salvation can't be reduced to a formula or to an incantation. You can't say, okay, point one, point two, okay, I've done the, all the way to point three. No, it's a matter of the heart and the spirit. What I've done with these ten commands is I've coupled them together to make five easy to follow points. 
and this outline is in your bulletin. But I wanted to give you a, a simple and clear picture of the gospel and how you can respond to it. I want you to see the elements of faith here that the Holy Spirit is calling elements of faith so that you can leave here in great joy. Let's look at these. Number one, submit to God and resist the devil. Verse 7, this is the first element of faith, not the first in order, but the first James mentions. All right? Submit to God and resist the devil. What's it mean to submit to God? Well, it comes from a military term which means to get in line or get in rank. Um, submit to God. It's a passive verb which means it has to be done voluntarily. Can't be coerced, can't be forced. Uh, no one can force you to get in line spiritually except God. But that aside, the word that James uses here has the idea of getting in line. Um, no one can experience the forgiveness of sins, the, save, the saving grace of salvation without submitting to God. This is very important. So what does it mean to submit in God? Uh, uh, submit to God? I, I said get in line, but let's, let's unpack that a little bit more. Um, how do you get in line? Well, what did Jesus say about this? He said, you have to believe on me whom God has sent, right? So the first line of, or the first order of submission is accepting or receiving the person whom God has sent to this planet to represent him, Jesus Christ. Embrace him is the first step of submission. Instead of embracing your own agenda, embrace God's agenda. And Jesus, by the way, is God's agenda. Um, submitting to God is the opposite of what the world tells us. Um, we're being told that we should assert ourselves. In fact, there's assertiveness training. There's assertiveness books. You can, you can go online right now and find 15 articles on assertiveness and how you need to be such. Well, there may be some value in being assertive in certain environments, but certainly not with God. All right? Don't let anyone tell you what to do, the world says. You must defend your rights. No one, not even God, should be pushing you around. So, Christian, let me ask you a question. Are there areas in your life, even as a true Christian, that you have resisted God's authority? If one of the basic elements of submission to Christ, submission to God, are there areas in your life that aren't that? I, I, I just want you to consider that because you're aware of the fact that God has claims on your vocation, right? God has claims on your children. God has claims on your free time, on your health, on your finances. God has claims on all of those things. Have you submitted to him all those things? Um, this is what it means to embrace Jesus as Lord. He's Lord of everything in your life. And some have said, or Lord of nothing. Um, resist, what does that mean? It says, submit to God and resist the devil. What's that mean, to resist the devil? Well, when one submits to Jesus, you are resisting the devil. The last thing Satan wants you to do is submit to God. And so when you submit to God, you are resisting the devil. They go hand in hand. The last thing Satan wants, like I said, is you to be in tune with Christ. Um, 
Resist is the same word used as verse 6 where it says God is opposed to the proud. So resist and oppose is the very same word in the original language. Uh, in the same way that God opposes the proud, we should resist the devil. Resist is also a military term, so submit and resist are both military terms. Resist means stand your ground. That's what the word meant. Stand your ground. Pay attention to Satan's schemes. Don't give in to him. Resist him. The Timothy group, which is uh, an early morning um, time with men to look into a deeper walk with Christ begins again on February 21st here in a couple weeks. And this session we're going to be reading C.S. Lewis's classic, The Screwtape Letters. And this is, this is a wonderful little book. He creatively writes how Satan tries to trick us, how he tries to get in our way and, and cause us to stumble. Uh, men, if, if you aren't doing anything on Thursday at 6 a.m., if you are doing something, change your schedule so you can come. It is going to be a wonderful study. Uh, we have copies of the book here someplace um, on campus. So um, be with us and let's study together through this. Um, it, it's really going to help us to be together and, and discuss these things. Resist the devil. Ephesians 4.27, Paul says, give no opportunity to the devil. Same idea. Um, if, we, if we give Satan a foothold, give opportunity to Satan, he's going to step in there. Do you think he's going to pass an opportunity to get into your life and mess you up? I don't think so. He's a smart enemy. Um, he sees a foothold. He takes advantage of it. Um, and so he's going to do everything he can to disrupt your position in Christ, your walk with Christ. Uh, on Saturday mornings, a group of men get together to discuss um, Puritans, and this book that we're discussing now is uh, Thomas Brooks's book called Precious Remedies Against Satan Devices. Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. So Satan has devices. He has tricks. And Brooks, who's a Puritan, uh, writes an entire book on how to deal with each of his tricks. It's a wonderful little study. One of the things we discussed yesterday morning was that, that Satan thinks that he, if he can get you to a place where sin happens, he's won half the battle. If Satan can just get you to that place, wherever it is, geographically, he's won half the battle. So if you're susceptible to sensual lust, put a block on websites. If you're susceptible to material lust, don't go for walks at Macy's. All right, this is what it means to resist. Uh, you know what I mean. Secondly, we see here, it says, draw near to God. You see that? Verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. We must do more than just resist the devil if we're going to know Christ, if, if our faith is going to be authentic. We must actually come near to God. Ephesians 2.13, but now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So those of us who are friends of God are near to him by virtue of being in Christ. Right? But there's more. There's more growing Christian. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. This is one of my favorite promises in all of Scripture. Just think of the 
the truth here. If I will but put in a little time and effort, the God of the universe will come near to me. Wow. Um, Luke 15, verse 20, is a wonderful picture. Actually, it's more than verse 20, but 20 is the point. Uh, it's a wonderful picture of drawing near to God. You remember the story of the prodigal son? Uh, he took off and oh, was living sinfully, spending all of his inheritance. Ran out of money, decided to come home. Got, got his mind straight, got his heart straight. And as he was, you know, tentatively walking towards his home, do you remember what happened? Yeah. He was, he was physically drawing near to his father's home, and his father saw him, and what did his father do? He ran to him. He, he, he was more interested in that, that attempt at nearness than the son was. This is, this is what Kent Hughes says about that in Luke 15. Inch toward God, inch toward God, and he will step towards you. Step towards God, and he will sprint towards you. Sprint to God, and he will fly. What a wonderful truth. So how do we draw near to God? Well, there's the, the typical responses, which are good and accurate. Prayer, submission, Christian disciplines. Um, but I, I'd say that sequentially after submitting to him uh, and embracing Jesus Christ, prayer has got to be the first and foremost powerful means of drawing near to God. So we need to step away from the busyness of life, retreat to solitude, open God's word, and plead with him in prayer to do his work on our soul. Draw near to him. Prayer demonstrates a desire for God's presence. It demonstrates a yearning heart. And in Ephesians 6, 18, the Apostle Paul was talking about this very thing, spiritual warfare, how to win this thing. And he says this, pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayers of supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Pray for yourself and pray for each other. Pray for me. All right? You want to draw near to God, that's how you do it. Spend time praying. I believe these four verses here, 7 through 10, are explaining what it means to draw near to God. I think the sermon title could have been, well, it is that, isn't it? I don't know, what, do you, what is the sermon title? Something about far to near, something like that? This is, this is what all these verses are about. L listen to the psalmist here, 145, 18. The Lord is near to all who call on him. Just call. You never call. <laughs> right? Just call. Um, Jeremiah 29, you will seek me, God said, and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Not a divided heart, not a double mind, as, Paul, as James uses. Not, not, not someone who's interested in both friendships. Um, but one who's got a, a singular vision, a single heart. A.W. Tozer wrote a wonderful article named Nearness is Likeness. Nearness is Likeness. I've made about 20 copies of it. It's on the back um, by the coffee out in the lobby if you want to pick one up. It's just one, two pages, front and back, one page, front and back. Um, anyways, 
Tozer in his article says, drawing near isn't about getting physically closer to God. Uh, God is spirit and always, is always as near as any time. But, but since there is a huge difference between our nature and God's nature, there is a lack of nearness. Simply because he is who he is and we are who we are, there is this vast separation, gulf, difference between God and ourselves. But the more your nature comes into conformity to God's nature, the nearer you will feel and be to him. This is Tozer's point, and it's a wonderful point. Spurgeon also thought about this a little bit. He says, nearness to God brings likeness to God. So, I'm going to try to explain it like this. Uh, for some reason, cats like me. If I come to your house and you have a cat, that cat will be on me, and I don't know why. I think the Lord is using it to sanctify me somehow. But cats like me. They rub up against me. They want my attention. I'm not sure what it is, but we had a cat once that Sherry saved from extinction. It was actually, I think, in the trash bin down by Safeway, and she let it in the car and brought it home. Um, so that became our family cat. And after much vet work, um, uh, we let it in the house. Um, but this cat was regularly finding its way to my lap and purring and doing the normal cat thing. Um, and yet, I still felt much closer to Sherry, who was in the other room. Why was that? It's because closeness or distance has very little to do with proximity. So it doesn't help you to go to the mountains to get near to God in reality or go to a monastery. Um, being close to someone has everything to do with likeness. I like Sherry, hence I feel, I'm like her rather, hence I feel closer to her. I'm not like a cat, hence I feel distance from it for good reason. There's an argument to not have cats right there. But, so, drawing near to God is mostly about becoming more like Jesus, right? <laughs> when, when we confess and turn from the sin that keeps God at a distance, what happens? He draws near. How, how can we draw near to God? Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 3.18, as we all with an unveiled face look at the glory of the Lord, we're being transformed into the same image. So how do you get near to God? Become like Jesus by looking at him, getting to know him, love him, follow him, trust him. The next is cleanse and purify. One way that we can become more like Jesus so that we'll be near to God is to cleanse and purify sin out of our lives. Now, you'll notice there's two there, cleanse and purify. Aren't those the same thing? Well, uh, notice what he says. He says, cleanse your hands and purify your heart. So, cleansing hands has to do with external sins. Purifying hearts has to do with internal sins. So, the external sins are those things that 
you know, people in your life can see the things that are obvious. Um, those things need to be cleansed from your life. Internal sins are the things that most people can't see and yet keep you at a distance from God, keep you from drawing near. So cleanse those external things that are obvious. Um, stop throwing things at your neighbor. And secondly, deal with those attitudes, actions, thoughts that mess you up, that keep Christ at a distance, that, that actually work themselves out of your life and into the externals. Um, so <clears throat> the Christian life is, is not a call to come as you are and leave as you were. Uh, no, it's quite different than that. It's, it is certainly come as you are except with the added, with a humble attitude. But if you leave as you were, there was never a real encounter with Christ, right? Real faith works. No one ever encounters Jesus and leaves the same. That's what all these tests in James are about. If you've had an authentic encounter with Jesus, things change. You will have cleansed outward sins. You will have dealt with inward rebellion and obstinacy and spiritual apathy. You will cleanse and purify. Um, I'm not saying you're going to be sinless. I'm not saying you're going to be, you know, any spiritual giant. I'm just saying you'll be uncomfortable with those sins that remain and, and seem to just cling to you. You'll be uncomfortable with that. And you'll work at eliminating them. You guys know who Mickey Cohen was? Or, or yeah, was. He was a, a famous mobster back in the day. Um, he professed faith in Christ at one point, amazingly. He had some actually good Christian friends and they um, shared the gospel with him and he professed faith in Christ. But his lifestyle didn't seem to change. Mickey Cohen remained Mickey Cohen, the gangster in Chicago. Uh, and when confronted about his lifestyle by his Christian friends, Cohen asked, what's the big deal? No one ever told me I had to give up my work, my friends, and my lifestyle. If there are Christian football players, Christian politicians, why can't there be Christian mobsters? <laughs> he didn't understand purification and cleansing, does he? Or did he? No. The fourth is mourn. Look at verse 9. Mourn is really a summary of four different commands that are there in verse 9. <clears throat> the first of command that we see is um, be wretched. That's kind of odd, isn't it? Especially in our day. Hey, be wretched. What's he saying? Well, James is saying that this is the state of a person who is lost and separated from God and knows it. This person is deeply bothered over the fact that they are separated from God. Um, this is the emotion that accompanies those who recognize their sin for what it's worth, for what it is. And this is how the tax collector felt, wretched in Luke 18 when he said, God be merciful to me, a sinner. He wouldn't lift his eyes to heaven even. He just bowed his head and beat his chest and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This is the emotion that David experienced when Nathan confronted him about his sin with Bathsheba. He was broken. He was wretched. 
This is an attitude that is part of the gospel. The next is mourn. Do you see that there? Um, be wretched and mourn. Biblical mourning is deep sorrow. It's remorse for sin. It's similar to how someone mourns for the death of a loved one or family member. That's the mourning James is talking about. It's, it's the same emotion that's associated with repentance in the Bible. 2 Corinthians 7.10, for godly grief produces what? Repentance. And then James commands us to weep. Tears are simply the outward manifestation of an inward attitude. You remember what happened to Peter after he uh, recognized his sin there at the end of the crowing thing? You remember that? What did he do? He went out and wept bitterly. This is a sign of the presence of the Holy Spirit. It actually bothers you that you sin. You feel wretched. You mourn. You weep. You're not comfortable with it. It's not okay. This is part of what the gospel is. And the fourth that I've included in this idea of mourning is, is seriousness. Um, it says, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Seriousness. James isn't saying that Christians can't laugh. He's, he's saying we shouldn't be flippant, trivial, and worldly about spiritual things. Uh, the friends of the world are flippant about spiritual things. If a person struggles getting serious about things of God, then I would say they're neck deep in worldliness. Um, but, you know, as Christians, especially contemporary Christians, this all seems a little gloomy, right? Why don't you stop talking about this sin stuff and tell me how wonderful I am and all that? I'm um, sure you can give Jesus some credit occasionally, but I just need to hear a little more positivity. Exactly what I actually heard recently. I need a little more positivity. Well, you can't have any positivity unless you deal with sin. All right? Otherwise, it's a ruse. There is, there is no straight way, no, no path to to salvation. There's no hope of joy, eternal joy, without going through the door of repentance of sin. You know, um, verse 9 does not mean that the Christian life needs to be lifeless, joyless, boring, sad, feeling guilty for having fun. I hope that's not the case. Some misinformed Christians look like they've been weaned on a dill pickle and think that means they're holy. It's not holy to be gloomy, to be Eeyore. Spiritual Eeyores, not allowed. All right? So, what could James be meaning here in verse 9? Although gloom and despair are not Christ-like characteristics, mourning is essential, especially over sin. Mourning over sin. And I think this is what Jesus meant in Matthew 5 when he said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Comforted with what? Well, they'll just get their emotion out? No. They'll be comforted with the gospel. The, the, the promise of forgiveness. The thing you hear here every week. Acknowledgement of sin and the promise of forgiveness. You'll be comforted, Christian friend. When you mourn appropriately, when you, when you weep over your sin, when you're serious about your, your Christian life, guess what comes? 
joy from the Lord. So don't be a friend of the world who, who laughs at sin. Um, to laugh at, at sin, I think, is just a demonstration of a hard, cold, and unconverted heart. So let's not be like that. Even Christians who drift away from sin often find themselves winking at sin. And that's also, I think James would say, out of bounds. James isn't trying to have us live in a state of, of despair and sadness at all. I think just the opposite. He's saying the only way to joy, the only way to peace and pleasure that God has designed for us is through the door of repentance of sin. This is what the psalmist said, David, in fact, after he was confronted about his sin with Bathsheba, Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O Lord, or O God, you will not despise. Mourning for sin. Five, humble yourself. This is the, the fifth um, element of the gospel. And like I said, it's, it's not in sequential order. Uh, humility is, I think, one of the first things that happens as we approach God. You can't come to Christ acknowledging your sin and, and pleading for forgiveness and mercy without humility involved, right? <laughs> so this isn't at the bottom sequentially. But James includes it here finally uh, to help us think about what it means to understand the gospel and embrace Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Humility comes before drawing near to God. Matthew 5, 3, which you heard read to you earlier, it says, blessed are the, sport, the poor in spirit. That means humility. It, the, the clearer our vision of God, the more sense humility makes. Don't you understand that? If you have a clear vision of God, what is your obvious response? It's humility. One, let me tell you a little bit about our liturgy. The very first thing we do on Sunday morning is remind you of the greatness of God. We read a psalm about his greatness. We read it responsively. The liturgist reads a part, then you respond. Uh, and so by the end of that opening psalm that we read together, you have a pretty good idea of the greatness and holiness of God. Then what's the next thing we do here? We run to repentance. We run to confession. Because that is the natural and God-desired and designed response to his holiness. And so we come in repentance and confession and lay it out before God in humility. And then after that, of course, we're reminded of the great promise of the gospel, which is that he died for our sins. That is, our Savior cleansed us with his own blood from all of our sins so that we could be white as snow. Jesus said, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Uh, are you unwilling to bow the knee, humble the spirit uh, before even God? Then you will never experience the exalted relationship that every Christian experiences with Christ. But if you'll, if you'll simply humble yourself and come to God who is the only one who can bring salvation and forgiveness of sin, then guess what? you will be exalted. You'll be lifted up. You'll be joyful and encouraged. 
And again, we see this in the story of the prodigal son. Uh, this, this young man uh, rebelled against his father, ran out and lived riotously. But after uh, circumstances brought him to his senses, what did he do? He humbled himself and went back to his father and received what he hoped he would, which is what we've been promised we would receive if we would simply come to him humbly. Friends, have you seen the gospel this morning? Have you seen it? Have you seen it in all these things that, that James has listed? The submitting to God and resisting the devil, drawing near to God by becoming more like Jesus, um, cleansing and purifying sin from your life, mourning over sin that separates you from Jesus, and doing all the above in humility. I hope you've got a glimpse of the gospel, friends. If, if you've grasped these things, you know what? Your, your faith is probably authentic. You know, even though you, you, can, you don't find any level of perfection here, and by the way, you won't until you see Jesus, so get used to it. Uh, but if you find a, 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 a heart yearning for a deeper walk with Christ, now, after hearing all these gospel truths, then that means the Holy Spirit is present. You remember the, remember the last thing Satan wants from you is a yearning for Christ, is a submission to God. And so he's not the author of that yearning. Do you feel a yearning for Christ? That's the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you never fail us. Your Spirit has left us this record all over Scripture of the Gospel, of the purpose of your visitation to this planet. We, we've, we come across it everywhere in Scripture and here so plainly in these few verses in James. I asked Lord Jesus, Heavenly Father, that you would send the Spirit your Holy Spirit at this time and confirm these truths to the people in this room. That you would confirm to them um, these gospel truths. I ask that each person in this room will have embraced these things. That if there might be some or a few that have yet to do so that they by your Spirit's power and converting work would come to see the importance of these things in their own lives and they would they would follow, that they would submit themselves to God um, by resisting the devil, by drawing near to God, by cleansing and purifying, by mourning in all humility. Thank you, Father, for the blessings that you've given us here in the Word this morning. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.